Jean Reith, and you're listening to General Inspectinus. This episode is the fourth part of our series on computer power and human reason. If you didn't catch the first few episodes of this series, I'd recommend pausing this episode, going back to the start, and starting from there. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Let's get into chapter one, On Tools. Um, Quite a nice title. Um, A lot of this chapter is on, like, the human tendency to, like, internalize our tools and then model our relationship with the world through the tools. And thereby, the tools become, actually, in many ways, according to Weizenbaum, become imaginary active agents within the world. Like, they are part of our recursive, creative reconstruction of our world continuously. Yeah, um, uh, this is very much like the sort of like quote unquote Heideggerian dimension of the book, right? That this is this is a the sort of question concerning technology stuff of techne coming to like mean something different than it originally did, and also coming to like dominate. Um, uh, our experience of the world. Um, but there's a lot of like, you know, it, it, there's a lot of stuff in here that's like very interesting on its own and also isn't couched in like weird mystical language. <laughs> well, yeah, which is a huge bonus. Yeah. Or, or, or blaming the Jews for the Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's always a plus. You, you gotta love that. Like, um, and, and there's, and there's also a little more of like the, I don't know, Donna Haraway view of cybernetics of like something being an extension of yourself. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That could be kind of cool. Like, or as, as being an actor in the world in itself, like, you know, there's, there's something there that doesn't have to be weird and sinister and lead to, you know, everything it leads to. Yes. Uh, in this instance. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we start with, you know, basic tools, right? We get plows, shovels, this kind of stuff. Um, uh, and the way that we use them to uh, rearrange the natural world, right, uh, to our advantage. Um, and that, you know, it's he, he says these transformations of man's habitat have necessarily induced mutations in his societal arrangements, right? So you know if you sort of follow Marx, you can see like, oh yeah, like the the creation of agriculture uh, creates the basis for class society, right? Um, uh, the 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 creation of irrigation, you know, leads to oriental despotism, these kinds of ideas, right? Um, uh, so, uh, moreover, or sorry, um, yeah, and then we get this idea that is like, like direct copy paste from Marx. Um, uh, so man is conscious of himself, of his existence of others like himself and of a world that is at least to some extent malleable more, uh, most importantly, uh, man can foresee 
In the act of designing implements to harrow the pliant soil, he rehearses their action in his imagination. Moreover, since he is conscious of himself as a social creature and as one who will inevitably die, he is necessarily a teacher. Um, I think that part is not in Marx, uh, which is very interesting. Um, his tools, whatever their primary practical function, are necessarily also pedagogical in instruments. They are then part of the stuff out of which man fashions his imaginative reconstruction of the world. It is within the intellectual and social world he himself creates that the individual prehearses and rehearses countless dramatic enactments of how the world might have been and what it might become. That world is the repository of his subjectivity. Therefore, it is the stimulator of his consciousness and finally the constructor of the material world itself. It is this self-constructed world that the individual encounters as an apparently external force, which is, again, very Marx, right? Uh, but he contains it within himself. What confronts him is his own model of a universe, and since he is part of it, his model of himself. Um, man can create little without first imagining that he can create it. And that's that idea of like where Marx is like saying, you know, the difference between humans and honeybees is that we can do this. Then we, we have that kind of like system for imaginative, like simu like multidimensional simulations of what could happen. And we can choose from among those things. Um, yeah, um, this all resonates pretty strongly. Um, um, he then kind of moves on to like uh, the tools being symbols of their activities, right? Like that the ore um, symbolizes rowing, uh, you know, the axe symbolizes the act of uh, chopping down trees or whatever the fuck, you know, um, these kind of become cultural kind of symbols or like strongly meaningful symbols in themselves. Yeah, it says uh, a tool is also a model for its own reproduction and a script for the reenactment of the skill it symbolizes. Uh, that is the sense in which it is a pedagogic instrument, a vehicle for instructing men in other times and places in culturally acquired modes of thought and action. The tool as symbol in all these respects thus transcends its role as a practical means towards certain ends. It is a constituent of man's symbolic recreation of his world. It must therefore inevitably enter into the imaginative calculus that constantly constructs his world. In that sense, then, the tool is much more than a mere device, it is an agent for change. It is even more than a fragment of a blueprint of a world determined for man and bequeathed to him by his forebearers, although that is also true. So this is how you rebut, you know, people who are just like, you know, for, for, for any given thing, whether it's, you know, AI shit or whatever, and they're just like, well, whatever, it's just a tool. And it's like, yeah, but tools aren't just tools, right? That's the point. Tools are not just tools. Yeah, it's 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 the the classic like guns don't kill people argument, right? It's like, well, yeah, but they have a pedagogic function, which is to kill people, because that's the thing that is like pedagogically encoded into the tool. Yeah, it seems it seems familiar from Feinberg, you know, um, transforming technology. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I feel like this this is in the sort of same domain as the idea of the technical code, but it is, uh, it hasn't quite 
done like it hasn't made that leap of sort of combining the idea of the mode of production and what he's talking about here into the technical code right that 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 um he's saying yes there is a there is a pedagogical function but he's not really talking about how there are there's sort of a multivalence of what the pedagogical function could be and how um, that interfaces with like the existing mode of production uh, as much. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think the point he's making here is probably even, it's probably more defensible than the Marxian uh, framework he's borrowing from. There's, you know, a lot, a lot of counter evidence about like agriculture and class society. Uh, the funny stuff about irrigation and oriental despotism is taken to its logical, uh, <laughs> taken to its logical extreme in a scholar named, uh, Wittofel. I've never had to say his name out loud. He's this book about hydraulic despotism. That's really, uh, a, a really fun, um, way of couching just racism in <laughs> mode of production terms. Um, yeah, but you still get, uh, arguments of this kind made, right? Like people saying mm -hmm. yeah, that um, uh, nuclear power plants are incompatible with um, any kind of uh, like participatory democracy um, because of the because of the pedagogic function that they encode about top down control. Um, mm -hmm. That they they sort of necessitate a higher uh, like a strictly hierarchical society, which you know may or may not be true, right? Uh, but th th you get similar kinds of arguments being made about, like, this tool implies this society. Yeah, yeah. It's, I guess it's it's less of a one-to-one -one scenario than it is, like, a more complicated. Yeah. I think the dependencies are, are the kind of interesting part, right? And, like, especially the path dependency of, like, when when you start wearing a groove into something and then just, like, it, things sit into the groove and wear it further, you know, or, like, um, the way that, um, what do you call them? You know, you know when you see, like, a park and there's, like, all these um, pavements, you know, going everywhere, but then you see this, like, dirt track that's been worn through the, the lawn because people, these are cow paths, and it's because somebody started walking there and then somebody else came along and saw the, the slight groove in the grass and decided to walk there as well, and there's a reinforcement that comes from just the fact that it was prior and then it is then it is posterior you know it just it keeps going and going and going yeah i saw some kind of study that was done we talked about this didn't we where it was like you use like an algorithmic function to determine oh yeah it was the it was the fungus thing the fungus thing right where they did the fungus simulation and it came up with like basically the same highway networks that exist in europe now um yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, there's a lot here then, yeah, the, uh, just elaborating on that kind of like the societal change that these various tools bring about, you know, the, the six shooter as the great equalizer, um, you know, ships and naval travel massively transforming their societies, the printing press transforming society. Um, but there's an interesting point then that like these, these, these changes happened at societal levels, even though, like, proportionally very few people might have ever operated those machines. Like, how many people ever really sailed a boat? Like, fuck all, really, by comparison to, like, the, 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 the population, but, like, it was enough to completely transform the world. Um, how many people operated a steam engine? Uh, yeah, eh, in various forms, quite a few, but, you know. The, the printing press changed the world even for the illiterate. Yes, right. Yeah, I think that's probably the strongest example, right, is that, like... You know, 
people who are literate can still talk about the things they read, right? So, um, yeah, for, like, written or printed propaganda still changed the world, um, even though it was it didn't necessarily imply a, a much higher literacy rate in itself. Yeah. Um, there's the example of the cotton picking machines deployed in the American South in around the 19, uh, 1955, um, destroying the market for the only thing that, uh, quoting from the, the book here, destroying the market for the only thing vast masses of black Southern agricultural workers had to sell their labor, thus began the mass migration uh, to the cities, etc., etc. Like, you know, there's, there's huge knock-on effects to all of these technologies. Yeah, uh, what have we got next? Um... Yeah, it's it's a lot of this, like, there's a question here, like, what is the compelling urgency of the machine that it can so intrude itself into the very stuff out of which man builds his world? Um, what is it about machines that fucking does this to us? Um, and it's, it's, it's about, like, prosthesis, right? That, like, human beings are seemingly, uh, like, not uniquely capable, but very capable of just extending ourselves through prosthetic apparatus. Um, other animals use tools as well. They don't seem to get trapped in this shit the same way we do, in quite, in quite the same way. Yeah. Um, yeah, not as much, for sure. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, that would be yeah. an interesting thing to study, like, with, like, other primates. Like, <laughs> you would have to do, you would have to do a very long study, but to study sort of, like, longitudinally, like, what is the effect of, like, this pedagogical function across generations. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, if, if, anyway, if primates could have strap ons. I feel like they would view it as extensions of themselves. And I don't know if it's a trap. You're, you're probably there. right. You yeah, know, you're totally. probably right. If only they had the, the means to do such things, they probably would. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't think, uh, we come yeah. bearing gifts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, cousins. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the thing is like, they, yeah, it's not the capacity for prosthesis, right, that really makes this so efficacious. Because, yeah, absolutely, plenty of animals have the capacity to engage in prosthesis, right? Like, that is that is not a uniquely human thing in any way. Um, so, yeah, it says... Uh, um, some, like the lever and steam shovel, extend the raw muscular power of their individual operators. Some, like the microscope, uh, are extensions of man's sensory apparatus. Other extends, others extend the physical reach of man, like the spear and the radio. Uh, vehicles make it possible for him to travel farther and faster than his legs would alone carry him. Um, and... It is easy to see how and why such prosthetic machines directly enhance man's sense of power over the material world. And they have an important psychological effect as well. They tell man that he can remake himself. Indeed, they are part of the set of symbols man uses to recreate his past, i.e. to construct his history and to create his future. They signify that man, the engineer, can transcend limitations imposed on him by the puniness of his body and of his senses. Once man could kill another animal only by crushing or tearing it with his hands, then he acquired the axe, the spear, the arrow, the ball fired from the gun, the explosive shell. Now charges mounted on missiles can destroy mankind itself. That is one measure of how far man has extended and remade himself since he began to make tools. Um, <laughs> can you imagine going after a deer with artillery? <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> 
It's very funny. I'm Please. sure someone's done it. Yeah, it's, it's happened. I'm absolutely certain someone has but, done I mean, it. Like, if you go fishing with grenades, you, you can definitely do that. Yeah, like... Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, the things that happen in redneck country uh, often involve explosives. I guess. Um, is all okay. I'm going to say about that. Okay. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, to, uh, so... Um, to construe the influence of prosthetic tools, a man's transformation uh, entirely in terms of the power they permit a man to aggregate to himself may invite a view of man's relationship to nature whose principle, indeed almost sole component, is a raw power struggle. Man in this view finally conquered nature simply by mustering sufficient power to overcome natural space and time, to engineer life and death, and finally to destroy the earth altogether. But this idea is mistaken, even if we accept that man's eternal dream has been not merely the discovery of nature, but its conquest, and that the dream has now largely been realized. I mean, no, it hasn't, but okay. Um, for for <laughs> victory over nature has been achieved in this age, that the nature over which modern man reigns is a very different nature from that in which man lived before the scientific revolution. Indeed, the trick that man turned and then and that enabled the rise of modern science was nothing less than the transformation of nature and a man's perception of, of reality. Um, so then we get, uh, we move from the, the sense of sort of practical power to the idea of changes in the perception of time and consequently of space. Yeah, so it's, it's physical augmentation and then moving into mental augmentation. Um, through seemingly through the clock, the clock is the big turning point here. Yeah, and this was this was very interesting for me to read as somebody who is time blind. Um, so my my experience of time is very different from most people's, uh, and I also exist alongside clock time. So the, you know you get the sort of description of of clock time here. Uh, that I guess applies more to like neurotypical people who are better able to interface with the clock. And then there's people like me who are just really bad at interfacing with the clock, but still have to deal with the effects. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, you, you wouldn't have to be Spanish, would you? Like, just... <laughs> no, I'm I, see. I'm uh, I'm a uh, uh, neuro neuropsychologically Spanish. Uh, I'm not okay, culture. Yeah. I'm not culturally Spanish. No, that's the level you want to you want to assimilate at. You, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I've often people. thought about how like my life would be a lot better if I didn't live in extremely clock discipline, clock disciplined societies. Gotta move to Spain. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, could be worse. It could, could be Germany. Like, so there's, there's a couple of pages here and then describing this transformation from, um, a kind of notion of time having to do with like regularities and harmonies in the world, like time as like circular and linear, like uh, cycles of moon phases and all that kind of shit, you know, um, and understanding a perception of the world in terms of great thematic harmonies and, um, like, uh, the, the, um, what, what's it here? I'm going to read out a quote. Um, but from classical antiquity until relatively recently, the regularity of the universe was searched for and perceived in great thematic harmonies. The idea that nature behaves systematically in the sense that we understand it, i.e. that every part and aspect of nature may be isolated as a subsystem governed by laws describable as functions of time, this idea could not have been 
even understood by people who perceived time not as a collection of abstract units, but as a sequence of constantly recurring events, right? So they they didn't have a sense of like we we now have a sense of like uh you know both both like time as a structure and and the universe being like divisible into subsystems and subcomponents and these things being you know functions of time or whatever and that wouldn't have made any sense back then like it was it was just seen very differently and this was the transformation of perception that um that he's getting at right like moving from that kind of model to one where um time is not circular it's it's kind of linear and um you know undergoes irreversible processes that there's there's a distinct arrow and direction to time uh from past to future uh, he, he touches on darwin here as one of the people who illustrate and illuminate this kind of concept that like um you know de deer haven't just been around forever they've evolutionarily undergone irreversible metamorphoses. Um, there's been a progress to their development, and they're, they're currently undergoing it. There is a distinct past, present, and future to the existence of deer and badgers and birds and all these fucking things, you know? Um, yeah, there's this super interesting passage that follows where he says, Cosmological time, as well as the mm. time perceived in daily life, was therefore a sort of complex beating, a repeating and echoing of events. Perhaps we can vaguely understand it by contemplating, say, the great fugues of Bach, but a special form of contemplation is required of us. We must not think in the modern manner, i.e. of Bach as a problem solver, or of each of his opera in his art of the fugue as being his increasingly refined quote-unquote solution to a problem he had originally set himself. Instead, we must think that Bach had the whole plan in his mind all the time, that he thought of the art of the fugue as a unified work with no beginning and no end, itself eternal like the cosmos, and like it enormously intricate in its connections, circles within circles within circles. We might then find it possible to think of life as having been not merely punctuated, but entirely suffused by this kind of music, both on the grand cosmological theological scale and on the scale uh, or on, and on the small day-to-day -day level. Such time is a revolution of cycles and epicycles within cycles, not the receptacle of a uniformly flowing progression of abstract moments we now, quote-unquote, know it to be. Um, and nature itself consisted, to be sure, of individual phenomena, but individual phenomena that were constantly repeating metamorphoses of themselves and hence were permanent eternal. What is eternal is circular, and what is circular is eternal, Aristotle said. And even Galileo still believed the universe to be eternal and to be governed by recurrence and periodicity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, this was like, yeah, it was very uh, interesting nature. to think about fugues in this way and, and, and the world as a fugue, fugue state. Um, uh, yeah, I'm definitely fucking with his fugue vision of the world the, the way that this comes up in in uh, marxism is that in dialectics of nature the eternity of the universe is a, a sticking point for angles he gets so hung up on this that um and you know in in the year of our lord uh there are people who will try to rebut the big bang by thumping dialectics of nature uh which is one of one of my favorite dialectic of enlightenment terms of all time like it's just my favorite it, it's 
it's maybe not like the most impactful one, but it's the one that gives away the game the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's this is this is deeply interesting stuff. I think it reminds me of again. I think this this actually this concept or this this notion of the way the concept of time changed has come up a few times recently. I think in neither vertical nor horizontal. It was part of that kind of transition from antiquity to modernity, um, especially like when you get to. Again, as is mentioned here, like Darwin, but also like the discovery of like entropy and, and stuff like that, it's just like it becomes more apparent that there's a distinct direction to to time uh, or, you know, in cycles within cycles, all this kind of stuff of like circles within circles gives way to realizing that all circles will eventually break and die. Um, and that's that's the that's the flow of time. Um, yes, 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 um, exactly. It, well, the, the the big break then is that um, there is in in the in the modern notion of time and evolution there is novelty and there is actual change and processes that can't be reversed. That's right. Yeah. Uh, more credit to Aristotle is that there's also an Aristotle quote for for Darwin's understanding of time. Oh yeah, interesting. Anyway. <laughs> uh, the, he then gets into this interesting question of like, what is the clock as a machine in relation to us, right? And he says, the clock is not a prosthetic machine. Its product is not an extension of man's muscles or senses, but hours, minutes, and seconds, and today even micro, nano, and picoseconds. Lewis Mumford calls the clock, not the steam engine, the key machine of the modern industrial age. Um, and I, uh, I can't, mm, I can't really buy this. I can't really buy that the, the clock is not a prosthetic machine because I have to use the clock as a prosthetic machine all the time. <laughs> like my sense of time is not, you know, the same as others. And if I don't have a clock there to like check in with, to sort of like have that like sense of regular time, then I'm in big trouble when it comes to like, you know, everyday functions. So I suppose there's a way in which like you could see it as not prosthetic, but it feels very prosthetic to me. I think I think I read this slightly differently that I, I think it is prosthetic in the way you describe. I, I agree with what you just said. But I, I think what he means is that it's not prosthetic in the same way that a hammer or a club was prosthetic in that, like, you could you could beat an animal to death and eat it with your hands, and then you had a club and you could do it easier. Like, but it was the same activity. The clock, the clock seems at least to not extend a kind of prior tendency anyway, or there's something odd and unusual about what the clock does that is a little bit different from right. using a club instead of your fists it us it itself is autonomous and reorganizes you that's i think that's the difference right that like the the clock operates on its own like it's it's autonomous in that it just keeps going of its own accord and it its internal model is its is its engine like it's not responding to something else like not in the way that like a hammer is driven by us the clock is self-driving and we we program ourselves in relation to the clock in the way you described, actually, that like it's it's a reference point, it's a kind of pole star that we look to, and it its autonomy is kind of what its value is, which is kind of odd 
It's it's a new thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. The club and the hammer enhance the autonomy of the person wielding it, but like the clock is a different. It's like if a hammer could just walk around on its own. We're like, wow, fuck! I wonder, wonder where that's going. Yeah, or, or it could just beat the nails in itself. Or, but if that's not even that's not even doesn't even capture it because there's no there's no clock. I guess I don't know. There was some kind of you know painstake either a painstaking attempt to calculate stuff happening with the sun or just this loose affiliation with, ah, it's bright again, you know, like, um, but like, what, what is the, cl- like, wh- what did the clock do for us that we were already doing? Yeah, I think that the key here seems to be this line at the bottom of page 23, um, that Mumford goes on to make the crit- crucial observation that the clock quote, disassociated time from human events and helped create the belief in an independent world of mathematically measurable sequences, the special world of science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, even if you have, like, you know, sort of a a pre-modern, you're doing, like, pre-modern, like, astrology slash uh, uh, astronomy, like, the reference points are physical phenomena that are not uh like they're always sort of in their place and they can't be just like moved into radically different contexts and continue doing the same thing like clocks can except if you take account of like relativity um uh but you know obviously like relativity is not like a foundational concept of modernity right it's 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 post postmodern in a sense um uh, but yeah, 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 like, I think the thing for me is like, it's interesting because I often do employ clocks precisely as prostheses to increase my autonomy, but it's like my autonomy relative to the relationship between my brain and clock time, right? So right. like, it's like, it's, it's sort of like a second order prosthetic um, as opposed to like a first order one, because it's like, would I need the clock to exist in time without clock time existing? Not really. No, I, I could still do just fine. But since clock time exists, I can use the clock as a prosthetic to exist with clock time. Yeah. Um, the contention here then is that like this... This this separate world of measurable and investigatable like mathematical sequences becomes deeply ingrained in our model, not just in our model of time, but in, in our model of everything. And suddenly everything can be time factored, right? Like everything can now be a time factored process. So you can have such a thing as acceleration or what have you, right? That like you can you can fucking point at anything and then go. But what about the time bit, you know? Yeah. Look look at that tree. What what about time? Like how how did it change over time? Like a time the time factoring of everything becomes deeply ingrained. Yeah, and another another thing, like aside from Mumford, there's also like those studies about I forget exactly who wrote about this first, but um just how like clock time became very practical when uh you know um rail networks uh were were uh implemented and so then everything became like there were sort of like practical events that shaped everything around you that were on clock time and if you were if you yourself were also not on clock time you were screwed right so then it became not just 
something that was thinkable, but something that was like practically necessary to exist with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. It, um, um, yeah, and I mean, I think there's there's fun stories of that kind of stuff being kind of resisted for a while, right? But like then the folks operating the the train network in at least in in Britain were just like. Yeah, but we can't we can't keep anything fucking running if we don't start using clocks, right? Like it's just you know it's it's it becomes clear what the direction of travel is. Yeah, it's all a clockwork like machinery. The whole rail network, right? Yeah, it spreads like a contagion. Um, and that's that's again the, the notion that the clocks uh, or like clock time as as autonomous machines, right? Like it's it moves of its own accord, and you kind of have to adapt yourself to it. It's um, in the middle of 24, I think, where yeah. he says it's not just that this, you know, has an impact on human thinking, because after all, longitude and latitude, and, and since last session, I have now memorized which one is which. Go me. You see, you see longitude is long. Um, but that this is the part that accounts for humans' mastery over nature, not the prosthetic element of technology that he was talking about before. It's not about having a huge hammer. It's about modeling. And this was also interesting that a clock is the, uh, is a model of the solar system when you really put, when you really get down to it, you know, one of those things where I had all the raw materials to, for that thought, but didn't get there. Um, but having that model of the solar system keeping going that like enables human mastery over nature in a way a big hammer never will um yeah and 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 he says the the clock is clearly not a prosthetic machine it extends neither man's muscles power muscle power nor his senses is an autonomous machine and again it's like i i i think it does extend your sense of time but uh i do see his point as well um yeah the the autonomy is more important than the prosthesis. Yeah, and the, the clock created a new reality, right? That's the kind of um, things, right? And like, um, it kind of enabled a new kind of investigation into the world. It enabled science, right? And like, there's there's a really wonderful line here that like, um, things could be measured against this abstract state and not just be based on your kind of feels and vibes about what's going on. And that this, uh, quoting, this rejection of direct experience was to become one of the principal characteristics of modern science. Um, yeah. Um, remarkable stuff. And then that, that, that just became like a practical reality. It's like, like it's, it's like, you know, if I have time blindness and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I was, I was uh, late for this appointment because uh, um, my sense of time didn't tell me that it was happening they'll be like that doesn't matter clock time says you're wrong like you're screwed um like your your subjective experience of time makes no difference to the situation um quoting again uh, gradually at first and then ever more rapidly and it is fair to say ever more compulsively experiences of reality had to be representable as numbers in order to appear legitimate in the eyes of the common wisdom um, so we're getting into the, the development of this kind of scientific numer- numerized, yeah, uh, becoming machine, becoming computer. You know, <laughs> this is what's happening. Yeah, and uh, and and um, 
We have the idea of uh, self-elimination in judgment uh, from Carl Pearson in 1892, although I think it goes back a fair bit further than that. Um, uh, it's like, yeah, of the many scientists I know, only a very few would disagree with that statement. Yes, it must, yet it must be acknowledged that it urges man to strive to become a disembodied intelligence, to himself become an instrument, a machine. So far has man's initially so innocent liaison with prostheses and pointer readings brought him, and upon a culture so fashioned bursts the computer. Um, yeah, and, and, and then we have this idea from Dewey, which was pretty interesting, right, where he says... Every thinker puts some portion of an apparently stable world in peril, and no one can predict what will emerge in its place. Um, so just this idea that, like, idea, like ideas are, like, novel thoughts are inherently, like, disruptive of reality. Like, they, they, they're going to, you know, shake things up, right? Um yeah, like, who would have thought that, like, measuring the time it takes for the moon to rise and set would eventually lead to this concept of, like, disembodied intelligence and, like, machine intelligence? You know, like, what, what a weird trajectory. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, so, you know, it says that the impulse the clock contributed towards the alienation of man from nature required centuries to penetrate and decisively affect mankind as a whole, and even then it had to synergistically combine with many other emerging factors to ex exercise its influence, such as, you know, the steam engine. Um, uh, and he talks about how, like, when the first telegraph line connecting Texas with New York was laid, doubts were expressed as to whether the people in those places would have anything to say to one another. Um, and it, <laughs> it's like... Um, in a sense, it's true, right? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, even um, in like, our time with, like, massive telecommunications, there's so many people in so many places I could potentially contact, but don't because I have nothing to say to them. But the, the minority of communications that are meaningful in some way uh, are still numerically so huge that it's very important, even though the majority of, of possible communications don't happen because there's no meaningful reason to have them happen. Yeah. It is sort of a cute thought, like, well, and I don't know, maybe, maybe they all were onto something because we all don't go on social media because what can it do but ruin your day? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. I'd be better off not knowing what they have to say. Um, um, but well, yeah, but I mean, like this this call right now that is happening is across <laughs> the world, and and the reason why is because we have something to say to each yeah, other. Totally. It's just we're in a yeah. very very small minority of all oh, the possible on. communications that could happen. We're we're in we're in such different places. What could, how how could we have so much in common that we could possibly have anything to say to each other? Well, is is it perhaps that we're involved with some kind of command? control problem because that's what uh, Weizenbaum seems to think that well, this ended up really expressing its utility in is with like the Pentagon or with banks and uh, and to go back a little bit we skipped over LTV mentioned labor theory of value we did it's right there um, yeah yeah value quantified uh, bottom of 26 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. go on at the the impulse towards the clock uh, um, section. The steam engine arrived when, in the common sense view, time and space were already quantified, and eternal nature governed by immutable laws of periodicity implied a mandate, one made explicit in holy books and exercised by institutional vicars of the eternal order that quasi-constitutional, hence constrained authority, had long since been displaced by, for example, the relatively unconstrained authority of money, i.e. of value quantified, and especially the value of a man's labor quantified, I suppose. There we go, yeah. folks. It's good, you know? The, 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 yeah, we, uh, we, got, we got some LTV in here. It's ortho approved. You're allowed to read ortho it. Ortho approved. <laughs> yes. And the commissar yes. gives a blessing. This gets my stamp of approval, at least. Um, there's there's an accelerating process happening here, right? That, like, it takes a while for the clock to bed in, like, to truly un- unravel its influence into the, into society. Then the steam engine comes along, and it takes a shorter amount of time for that to really hit its impact. And then the telephone, then the radio, then the computer. It's accelerating, and as this process is going, it's wearing deeper tracks and reinforcing itself for even more rapid transformation the next time around. You know... Um, the time horizons are getting shorter and shorter on every iteration in this process of numerization and mechanization of the world. Uh, and yeah, this this is where he he talks about the idea that like computing technology was essentially reactionary, um, that that it was used to prop up existing social structures that otherwise might have uh, changed. Um, as opposed to like, you know, um, advancing any kind of revolutionary process. Um, yeah. Revolution in the emancipatory sense that is. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's its own kind of revolution, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, and, there's you know, a, there's the, just a broader modern notion of revolution, which just means shit changing, you know, like it doesn't even yeah, have woo, the, the quality. iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a revolution um, in your pocket. Yeah, um, there's um, there's also this interesting tautological notion about computers that pops up here that he connects to earlier projects um, in modernity and how you know the Apollo project, the Manhattan project. Um, you know, most most people today probably believe the Apollo project could not have been managed without computers. The, the history of the Manhattan Project seems to contradict that belief and that um, at this point we sort of just assume that you would need computers to do anything like, well, I don't know, coordinate a complex economy, I suppose. Um, and overall, he thinks that this is a sort of tautological, ideological outgrowth of, of the sort of computer self-assurance and I don't know how much he's connecting that to what he's saying earlier, but I think that I, the analogy suggests itself. Oh, gosh, how, you know, I guess we could have coordinated this chat by, you know, pigeon, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you could, you could, yeah, I mean, you could. Could have traveled to a conference. Um, well, yeah, or you could just do like a a conference call, right? with human switchboard operators that, that Indeed. yeah, like you could do it in like purely analog form, right? Without a computer, but yeah, the, the computer is believed to be indispensable and inevitable and is, 
welcomed with open arms as it arrives, just in time to save these social structures from collapse. Um, it's, it's again that, that, th that thing he's been kind of pointing out, it's like, just this, just this weird enthusiasm for this kind of shit. Like, everybody, everybody loves this fucking thing, you know? I'm sure people were kind of like, gee whiz about the steam engine or whatever, but like, the sheer enthusiasm for computers is, is kind of remarkable. Yeah, I, he says, uh, the computer was not a prerequisite to the survival of modern society in the post-war period beyond. It's enthusiastic, uncritical embrace by the most quote-unquote progressive elements of American government, business, and industry quickly made it a resource ex essential to society's survival in the form that the computer itself had been instrumental in shaping. Um, and so, you know, this is progressive in the sense of, like, the iPhone is a revolution in your pocket, right? Right. Um, yeah. So without the computer, things could have changed and modern society could have been something quite a bit different. It could have evolved and, and mutated, but it didn't. And Weizenbaum blames the computer for that, right? Like, that it, it helped keep the sh keep shit on the rails. Um, yeah, and in that sense, it was indispensable. Like, in that sense, it wasn't just ideology. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a yeah, 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 yeah. It's a little bit later, he kind of uses the exam example of, like, um, bank clerks frantically sorting through checks and, and postal orders in the middle of the night, and, like, with wheelbarrows full of checks and paper going back and forth and shit like that, and that, like, the computer then arrives, and it's like, oh, wow, like, this, this, this system that would have fallen in on itself, and that, like, might have led us to reconsider aspects of banking and finance and whatever, it's just like, well, the computer's just cleaned up this mess for us, like, fucking amazing, like, we, we don't have to worry about the wheelbarrows anymore. You know, and there is an analogous idea that um, in the past, uh, the size of empires were constrained by their um, by the extent and efficiency or spe sorry, speed of their um, communication networks. And also by their uh, capacity for bureaucratic processing, right? So mm -hmm. once you reach some kind of limit in those things, then it becomes impractical to expand the empire any further. It just becomes too costly because everything breaks breaks down at distance or at scale. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's kind of like saying... Well, what if instead of having, um, you know, that sort of uh, world empire idea or global empire idea made possible through computing, you know, we had sort of like imperial decline as we reached the limits of bureaucracy um, and, and, and then the possibility of uh, uh, revolutionary disruption at a social level. The term he uses here is internal speed, that like a, a team or a system or um, an organization has an internal speed that becomes a limiting factor, and that the, the computer massively increased the internal speed of, of these systems, that like they could cope with so much more, so much more quickly. Oh. Oh, he even applies this principle to um, welfare, 
uh, like government, welfare, social services, that um, at the bottom of page 30, it may be that social services such as welfare could have been administered by humans exercising human judgment if the dispensing of such services were organized around decentralized indigenous population groupings such as neighborhoods and natural regions, but the computer was used to automate the administration of social services and to centralize it along established political lines. If the computer had not facilitated the perpetuation and, quote, improvement of existing welfare distribution systems, hence of their philosophical rationales, perhaps someone might have thought of eliminating much of the need for welfare by, for example, introducing negative income tax. Uh, which is, okay, that's a kind of a, that's an interesting example. Um, he goes on. The, the very erection of an enormously large and complex computer-based welfare administration apparatus, however, created an interest in the maintenance and there for in the perpetuation of the welfare system itself. And such interests soon become substantial barriers to innovation, even if good reasons to innovate later accumulate. In other words, many of the problems of growth and complexity that press insistently and irreversibly for response during the post-war decades could have served as incentives for social and political innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see that pretty clearly there, the branching points, right, like that. Um that there's a problem, right? Like that, you know, Ashby's law or whatever, like a, a basic cybernetic stuff that like these systems are unable to keep up with their actual task and their environments. And so you could de decentralize the thing and decompose it into smaller units that would be better able to balance the variety equation. Or you introduce computers and just centralize the whole fucking thing and, you know, prop it up that way. Um, it's a way of hiving off these alternatives. Like there were alternatives on the table and then the computer comes along and everyone goes, no, 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 we're keeping it as it is. And and I Indeed. think the thing is, though, that, like, sort of, like, Beer would kind of have, like, a rebuttal to this idea, right? That, like, actually, these systems are incredibly dysfunctional because the variety engineering is all wrong. Um, and you can't sort of, like, compute your way around that, right? Like, you can... You can't, like, you can do things really fast, but you can't, like, fundamentally eliminate the variety problems that these bureaucracies are trying to um, solve, right? So it may be that, like, the, 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 the mechanisms are, like, they seem faster in the halls of power and more effective, but then there's like a degree to which those problems are just being displaced onto the people affected by the bureaucracy, or the bureaucracy is like completely paralyzed at the center. And so you have like an idea to just like continue to put more computers in to, to make it faster without having a better sense of what is going on. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that might be a more sensitive response to this, but it is really funny to just see someone have the exact opposite uh, response to my naive view of the Soviet Union that, well, maybe if they just put in big computer, it could have lasted. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that well, that's the that's the thing, right? Is that like, um, the use of computers for economic calculation could never have functioned without a corresponding social revolution, right? And 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 just having faster computers to do computation at Goss plan, like really wouldn't have solved anything um, at all. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, his his view is is if you're gonna take this axis of you know description, this is more descriptively accurate. Yeah, and like I mean, there's there's this sad thing as well that like these. Um, uh, I think I think I mentioned this last episode as well, but I'll just reiterate it. But like you know, we see in All Watched Over My Machines of Love and Grace the the, the comic commentary on the way this all plays out. That like yeah, the 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 fucking capitalists and the neoliberals and all those fucking shitheads tried to use computers and finance to stabilize the world as it was, but then it, it ended up just being ineffective and shitty. And like it, they they seemed like they were dodging a bullet, but like created much bigger problems for themselves that then are kind of, it would have been preferable to go through these social revolutions rather than have the computer come along and and stop the gap for a little while and then just create bigger and bigger problems a couple of decades later. Yes, yeah, there's a way in which, like, an apparent solution can substitute for a real solution <laughs> by, by organizing activity. Yeah, it, it, it enables the avoidance of change. Yeah. We can avoid substantive change by just plugging the gaps for a while. Oof. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's that notion of the computer revolution as a counter revolution that just um, yeah obstructed more than it helped, you know, for for uh, for people and society. Right. Um, it's a hell of a take, you know. It's a really interesting take. Yeah, yeah. and uh, there's there's a there's something he says that is kind of in line with you know, all of that where he's talking about like using a computer for astrology does not make astrology effective. Right. <laughs> like it, it, you, you can do complicated computations faster with it, but it doesn't, it's, it's still garbage in garbage out. Right. It's still erroneous. Yeah. Um, isn't there, isn't there a popular astrology app? That's one of the few places you can work in the Haskell programming language. Oh, yeah, that's I, that far to that. Yeah, that is, that is an... Co-star. Yeah. Like... Oh, this, that sounds about right. <laughs> this collision of, like, ultra-rationalist fucking shit with, like, the most irrational stuff. I don't know. It, there's something beautiful about it. Uh, you know? Yes, yes, um, yes. Haskell, the, the most math-brained kind of language mm-hmm. there is. Oh, yeah, that's literally the only the only people I've heard of talk about. Oh, you know, you should just give up all this modern stuff and return to tradition and use Haskell. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, bon appetit, boys. Um. So Weissenbaum kind of moves on to like, yeah, okay, the, the way that computers got deployed kind of sucked, but like also tools as the as symbols um, get displaced onto new contexts, right? Like that. Um, it, he kind of uses the example of, like, um, the steam engine, like, the stationary steam engine gets turned into the locomotive, right? That, like, initially it's a stationary thing, and then it's like, hold on a minute, if we if we strap some wheels to this thing, we've got something else. It gets displaced into this new new thing, right? <clears throat> and then new pro- new problems are created, and new responses are are come up with, and then new tools are invented, and around, around the, the, the loop goes. Um... So he has a couple of good examples of like these um, tabulation rooms becoming manual, um, like become as manual computing becoming actual computing, right? Um, and the computer just finds more and more, um, finds more and more problems to solve, and finds more and more solutions to become a problem. Um, and, and you know that's one of the things that Beer was complaining about, right? Is that like everybody's trying to computerize things without thinking about whether it's like 
even a valuable operation. The quill pen um, operations, the, the, qu- the quill, pen, quill pen processes become computerized. I think it's, it's <laughs> whenever Beer mentioned that, I was just like, yeah, but I'm, I'm staring at a PDF, right? Like it's literally a facsimile of a fucking page. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> we're still, we're still absolutely shackled to these, these old concepts. <laughs> Um, you know a word document just looks like a fucking a4 sheet of paper it's it's insane (laughs) but you didn't have to send me this book like in the mail and get it through customs or whatever at least it would have cost a fortune to do that they're like they're like a hundred bucks a piece it would have yeah yeah there's like 10 of these right like there's like a couple of these around i'm gonna i'm gonna see if i can pick up a copy a paper copy somewhere um this this is one i'd like to have in print just because it yeah it's a, it's a unique, it's a unique book. Um, I guess this part of the chapter could be summarized in the quote: "Only rarely, if indeed ever, are a tool and an altogether original job it is to do invent it together." Yeah, it's so that, that that's the kind of thing of like the steam engine just replacing horses and therefore horse horsepower, right? Like it's just mechanizing something that already exists and then later some new context arrives and you get a, a genuinely novel kind of application um similarly businesses using these computers to just automate their i mean the, the, the computers used to be like a fucking warehouse full of women just to, just like writing things down with pen and paper you know um they, they get computerized and it's just like all those processes are just automated and then it takes a while for there to be truly novel applications um to to apply the thing to yeah that's right that's right um also uh there was a funny line here uh ordinary language gains its expressive power in part from the fact that each of its words has a restricted domain of meaning it would be impossible to say anything in a language that consisted entirely of pronouns for example um which i just feel like is (laughs) i don't know like what people imagine um the the the, the woke uh plague yeah. becoming eventually that there, there's nothing but pronouns Although, yeah um, i don't know like you could come up with like a church numeral encoding on top of pronouns and like get get back to binary and then you're you're ready to go again right you know <laughs> uh, yeah but that would only be pronouns in the in the uh the most superficial uh taxonomicals <laughs> yeah, would, would not in a syntactic sense yeah they would be bit values you know <laughs> Well, I I was hoping we would get Weizenbaum's take on pronouns, so here it is. I, I think I think he'd be fine. I, mean, like I, I like to think so. If only he had lived another decade. Ah, oh, sad. Yeah. Um, I know. Yeah, at the very least, we know what he would have thought of Swampside Chats, because uh, on 37, it says, We know that use of specific words in vastly general ways, for example, such words as like and you know... <laughs> impoverishes rather than enriches current American English or just I guess podcasting in general um. yeah I, I I think he um well he's he's clearly subscribing to a very outdated notion of linguistics <laughs> yeah he's he's an old guy you know you know he would have loved clueless I mean he lived in California though you know it must have been <laughs> but yeah if you if you listen to like people speaking on the news from this time they sound so incredibly eloquent oh right sure like just average people like like the the, the way they speak is is so like considered 
uh, compared to the way that we speak now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not saying it is more eloquent. I'm just saying that it seems it that way because it's such itself. a dramatic contrast. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of rapid fire of, of like interesting kind of um, examples and stuff that's going to use here, I guess. Uh, one point that I found kind of powerful was that like um, applying computer power to a task can really reveal the weaknesses in the technique. And you don't have the fig leaf of it not being tried. Um, you're you're, you're kind of on your own at that point. So I think what maybe is the example numerical weather forecasting. Like at a certain point, it was like, well, maybe we could do that kind of shit, but like, good luck doing it. And then then computer power is available, and it's like it's really put to the test as to whether this is a valid technique or not. Um, yeah, this is kind of how I feel about orthodox solutions to the labor theory of value. Um, so it can really expose the weaknesses and limitations in something. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as you said, yeah, it can throw a very harsh light on things that were hypothesized to maybe be possible. It also, he also touches on the way that, like, computerizing tasks becomes busy work of its own, right? That, like, you you start off with this task of, like, oh, we're going to computerize this whole process. Oh, that's going to take fucking forever. And it's like, oh, we're going to have to computerize a sub-problem. And then that's going to have its own sub-problems that, like, it becomes a whole... You could make a fucking career out of just doing that kind of shit, right? Like doing the research and then computerizing the subcomponents and eventually probably not actually delivering anything. <laughs> you know, it's it's a whole thing in itself. Like it's not just it's not even just that like tasks are being automated. It's that like the automation of tasks is its own whole field of endeavor. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. History of computer science, I guess. Um <laughs> I'm still trying to get in on it. That's the biggest problem is that there's not enough opportunity to. There's not enough opportunities in comp sci. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a, it's a pittance, you know. Yeah, it's uh it's good. It's it's good work if you can get it. It's uh, <laughs> you know, um, endlessly going around pretending to solve problems and uh, not really getting anywhere. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had enough truth-telling, you know what I mean? Like, so it hasn't got me anywhere. So. Um, then finally we have the idea that, like, of, of, of like, computerized decision-making, like, computerized judgment <laughs> of, like, the managers be like, what? Like, you know, type basically typing into chat GPT, like, how do I balance the budget? <laughs> and then waiting for chat GPT to decide what the answer is. Um, uh, is you know extremely bogus but persistent, right? That that like you could just refer to it as an arbiter of right and wrong. Um, yeah, and, and making and that, that logicality is rationality mistake, and right? that that lobotomizing, um, because every, that, that that sort of lobotomized process is is because everyone's so into it, like it's. It cuts off, so it, like, it enables so much, but then disables so many alternatives, right? Like, you, you just have this, like, conviction that this is possible and desirable and should be done this way. And you can find yourself in Wise and Bomb's shoes going, fucking no, like, come on, like, you know, think for a moment, like, these, these things are not infinitely capable, and also there's stuff that we do as human beings that isn't fucking computerizable, you know? Um... But I guess the, the the fact that it does enable so much leads to uh, this illusory sense that it does everything, like including everything we are, 
um, that this is desirable. And that, 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 that leads you to that point where approaching ChatGPT to ask, oh, what, what should our uh, B2B sales strategy be for the next quarter is like, a, is like a sensible fucking formulation to that person, apparently, you know? Um. Yeah, well, it, it functions in the same way that astrology did traditionally, right? Or still does, where it's like it allows you to disavow decision-making responsibility by displacing it onto something supposedly objective, um, and, the and, 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 and sort of like, yeah, yeah. Like, like just sort of like, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a um, what do you call that blow off valve for social pressure where it's like, you know, okay, well, it wasn't entirely my fault because the Oracle or the, the you know, the computation of the cosmos or the, the AI, uh, was also responsible for this decision. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know why I, I, not bristle, but I'm always, I just get some like chills every time I see such a deep resonance in this book with other social theory that's either being written at the time or won't be written for like another decade or so. Like, um, when he's going on about the, em you know, the emptiness of terms and, and the, which culminates in a discussion of the global village. And it's definitely a little more like on the um, spectacle side rather than the simulation side. But I think a lot of what it says towards the bottom of uh, 37 and top of 38, if you will indulge me, um, because, you know, we're talking about these dumb new solutions that it comes up with, but, um, you know, or some of them maybe aren't so dumb, but um, these things have enabled society to accumulate patterns of action that were never before possible. Um, what is less often said, however, is that the society's newly created ways to act often eliminate the very possibility of acting in older ways. An analogous thing happens in ordinary language, for example, now that the word inoperative has been used by high government officials as a euphemism for the word lie, it can no longer be used to communicate its earlier meaning. Terms like free, final solution, defense, and aggression have been so thoroughly debased by corrupt usage that they have become essentially useless for ordinary discourse. Similarly, a highway permits people to travel between the geographical centers it connects, but because of the side effects that it and other Factors synergistically engendered in prisons, poor people, and inner cities as effectively as if the cities were walled in. The mass communication media are sometimes said to have reduced the earth to a global village and to have enabled national and even global town meetings. But in contrast to the traditional New England town meeting, which was and remains so in my hometown, an exercise in participatory politics, the mass media permit essentially no talking back. Like highways and automobiles, they enable the society to articulate entirely new forms of social action, but at the same time, they irreversibly disable formerly available modes of social behavior. And a computer, in a sense, is a tool of this kind. Um, yeah. 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 That's what's so troubling for him about the computer, right? Like, it, it's it's a troubling thing about all tools, but like, especially this one has this effect of just cutting off so many possibilities <laughs> uh, for social action. Well, even just, you just like talking, <laughs> like if you go on the internet uh, trying to talk about politics without realizing that you're doing word war with, 
you know, ultra nationalist funded backed personalities, you're playing the game wrong. If (laughs) you're just looking at freedom as a value and not like a battlefield or something, you're in some way fundamentally naive. And that, that sucks because freedom is a good value and we should be interested in it, but good luck. Good luck communicating your interests. Like, yeah, yeah. Good luck with that shit. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely corrosive. Like, do you see, yeah, I mean, even, even among, you know, socialists or whatever, you just, you just have to bite your tongue sometimes when it comes to the concept of freedom, because it's so, it's so just hijacked, you know, like you're, you're going to get marked as a fucking libertarian psycho or something if you go on about like liberty, you know what I mean? Or freedom or fucking anything. Sure. And yeah. And I mean, what was that word? Socialists? I guess this is a process that is, it comes before computers, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, it really makes the rest of the the modern problem visible. The point he kind of finishes the chapter on then is that, like, there's a different kind of erosion also happening here. That, like, um, there's this kind of mythical sense that computers are making important decisions that were used to be made by people. But what's kind of really happening is it's just getting pushed into the computer, right? Like, that there's an abdication of responsibility and a kind of... This is, this is the, the, the abstraction and the mind-numbing, right? That, like... Um, decisions are being laundered through these systems and we're kind of losing track of of what decision is being made and it's an erosion of our capacity to decide um i mean mean, what is what is politics or like you know emancipatory politics if not about the the capacity to decide right like you know who decides how is one of the central questions of our entire project right um and the computer erodes all of that yeah 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 um and Again, I mean, people have sort of always had ways to disavow this uh, decision-making responsibility, but it's a really, really expensive and complicated way to do it. Like, I mean, yeah, wow. (laughs) Right. That's kind of it, right? Like that, like, uh, I I think the the most, well, I was going to say the most scalding aspect of this, but like there's a lot of, there's a lot of that, but like, It'd be one thing if this stuff was actually effective, right? Like, if they if they promised a sort of way of automating decision or whatever, and it actually kind of worked, that'd be one thing. But it doesn't work, right? It's just it's ineffective and shitty, and you're left you're left without the capacity to do the alternative, right? They they take the path of like, no, we're going to go this way. Not only that, they they disable your ability to back up and take the other fork of the road. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's particularly galling, not just that they did it and they fucked up, but they they would stop you from doing anything better. <laughs> yeah, they built a bridge that doesn't work through the path you're going to take. Yeah, and it, it's a double fuck up. Um, it's, it's it's especially grating that yeah, and that's that's the that's these fucking te- it's this it's this technocratic disposition in a bottle, right? That like. Not only is it stupid, but it's also ineffective. And not not only is it morally reprehensible, it's also ineffective. And its ineffectiveness blocks the possibility of doing different things. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Christ, you gotta you gotta hate this shit pretty hard. Uh, yeah. Um, hmm. And and like you know, Weizenbaum for many people, like if you're you know exposed to the sort of where the sausage is made. 
um, it's pretty natural to have a certain degree of resentment towards it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Apparently, many of his contemporaries didn't, but uh, the, you know, I feel like there's a sort of a, a fairly sizable number of people who who go through tech and also are like, "This is bullshit." <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a, it's a fairly common. It's a fairly common sort of position, I guess. Um, as we were talking about uh, before, as uh, Jean was saying about her job, um, you know, when when you're encountering technology not working, you know, someone that works in technology is bound to be like, well, yeah, that's right. Like, you know, of course it's I, that is what I expect. You know, if, if technology worked all the time, you wouldn't have a, a job. So, so the more you're exposed to this kind of stuff, the more you expect the technological fix to fuck up all the time. Like, I, I think the, the additional thing that is annoying is when the thing you are trying to fix is a pseudo problem, right? Like it, you're working really hard to fix a problem, but the problem itself is Im, improperly specified and conceived. So there, there is no actual solution beyond the, the like very technical, like near term solution of quote unquote fixing something that that cannot function. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. That 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 is. Um, I think that's uh, Ezra. That is pro that is probably a, a really good and resonant point here. That's probably worth elaborating on. Like in the green room, in the green room, we were talking about. How I've I've observed with people that like when, when somebody's like using a computer or you know operating their t smart TV or something like that and like there's something stuck like it's not responding to clicks or they're on a website and they they click a, a drop down and it doesn't actually open or something and they're like huh that's weird and I, I just immediately think that's not weird at all like the computers are always fucking broken in my experience like it's there's a weird there's a gap of expectation between like. Um, and maybe this this is kind of along the same lines of like Weizenbaum's observation that people seem to be really enthusiastic about computers and overconfident in the computer's abilities. Right? That like for some for some folks the notion that the computer would be broken or erroneous is surprising. And for me and for a lot of people who work in tech or I guess people who are kind of like who have observed these things going wrong, it's just like that's not surprising at all. Like the the you're telling me the computer is bust. It's always fucking bust in my experience, you know? It's like the most normal thing in the world for it to be fucked. So I completely believe that the dropdown would be fucking broken or that the button is broken or that when you click the form submit button, it doesn't actually fucking submit. Like that happens all the time. Um, so it's, yeah, it's like, I guess that's maybe one of the differences here. It's that Weizenbaum is like, no, these, these things do fuck up constantly. Um, and a lot of the folks he's talking to are like, no, this is a miracle machine. It's going to save the world. Yeah, there's um, always uh, there's always somebody willing to, willing to sell the sell the dream, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a tantalizing dream, you know. It's like you can kind of see the contours of the psychology that wants this to be true, and that wants the computer to save the world and whatever. It's like I can. I'm not, I wouldn't, I was going to say I'm not unsympathetic to it, but I am unsympathetic to it. But like, I can see how it happens. Like I can kind of place together the causal chain in my mind that leads from A to B there. I still hate it, but like, I can see how it happens. Yeah. And I feel like the, 
I feel like the Eliza video game, like the the visual novel, did a pretty good job of sort of like exploring the different ways in which you could want that or not want it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of the different endings and different like characters you can associate with. Ah, <laughs> oh, that was a great game. That, that rocked. Um, yeah, so we've gotten through uh, introduction and chapter one, which were pretty substantial. Um, I think in the next session we'll get through. Chapters two and three at an absolute minimum, because, like, three is pretty thin. Like, two, there's something to talk about. Three is, like, ten pages for us. Yeah, for us. It's it's just, like, he spends so much time explaining what fucking binary is, and I'm like, I get it. Like, I mean, everyone kind of gets it. Like, it's it's not really that important thing to explain, but um, he, he does use it as a setup for an actual point, which is worth talking about. Chapter two is interesting in that it goes over, like, formal languages and stuff. If you're not familiar with that... It's still it's a good read, but like I don't I don't think we'll be doing like a paragraph by paragraph reading of that. It's more like a general thing, um, and we'll we'll get into some of the subsequent chapters, I guess. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to crunch on those two quickly and then jump into four. I haven't read four, so I don't, I don't know what's going on with that. Four, yeah, four looks like it's more substantial than like it's it's back in the similar vein to introduction in chapter one, so. Um, he does front load this at the, in the introduction. He's like, yeah, chapters two and three are just explaining how computers work. Like, feel free to skip them if you already know it. Um, I appreciated yeah. that. Yeah, it's it, it, it's actually like, I, I said that it reminds me of like Electrical Engineering 101 and like basic comp sci stuff. But like, if you haven't gotten an introduction to that, this is actually a decent lesson in those really basic concepts. Like, it's not it's not a waste of time to read it if you can get a hold of this PDF and... Um, if, if you fancy reading it, yeah. And it insulates you from the thoughts most people have during those classes. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we have much else to say about this so far? About this chapter and the introduction? No. no I, don't, I don't think so. I think it's, uh, they're both, uh, you know, they're both really good. And um, uh, it's, it's worth going over this stuff always because... Um, yeah, I mean, the enthusiasm of embracing these technologies remains very high. Um, the skepticism is, you know, there's a fair bit of skepticism out there uh, for good reason. I, I think it's gotten more like in the last, like since the pandemic and everyone was, de- everyone figured out what depression was and they're on the internet all the time. And like, I think I think that was perhaps a turning point for the way people perceive this stuff. And then Facebook went from cultural darling to like it's it destroyed a democracy. It's you know it's like you know like I, I perhaps it's not as widespread as it needs to be. But uh, yeah, I mean we're we're still dealing with like the enthusiasm about AI, so-called AI, and uh, right. uh, you know. The skepticism and intelligent skepticism is warranted, and um, uh, it is good to get at sort of like the deep roots of why these problems exist in these early chapters. Yeah, I, I kind of found, on that note, I found it interesting so far that I don't think Weizenbaum said anything yet that marks his contribution as being like, from a prior age and and like something has changed since then like the 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 state of the art of ai has changed substantially and like the 
the language models that we have today are massively more capable, but that doesn't invalidate anything he said so far. Like, it's not really an argument about capacity um, or capability. It's, it's about what tools are and what tools do to us and what we kind of allow ourselves to be done to us through them. Um, none of that is really an argument about the possibility of language models displaying intelligence or anything like that. It's not it's just not really what he's arguing. Yeah, it's an ex- it's an extraordinarily um, ambitious argument that reaches a step beyond where he where things were at at the time because it wasn't enough for him to just you know so so called kick the AI community while it was down on this one particular technological bit. It's even if that gets solved. Let's talk about the deep human questions here, so that we don't get hoodwinked next time. You know, you, you may not like this, but your kids will love it. Like, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is why I went to study philosophy of technology. Right, is these mm. kinds of questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it, it's remarkable that it all still feels fresh. Like so far, at least, it starts to feel less fresh in the next couple of chapters, where it's like explaining from the 1970s how computers work and it's like yeah I, I know whatever but um even then it's still not like invalid information it's just a little bit a little bit long in the tooth um and i hope that i hope that keeps up like i i hope we never i hope in this book we never trip over a paving slab that's like oh actually he's just like this has all been invalidated by advancements since then but i, I get the feeling that's not going to happen I, I get the feeling i don't need to be worried about that Maybe the closest it's gotten is him being all tipper gore about video games. It's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm going to slap on a VR helmet, play some Fallout 4. That's all. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, good. I guess that's a good place to leave it off. Um, um, Yeah. What fun. Um, I get get the feeling this is going to take a while to get through. You don't say. I mean, I'm involved. Of course, it's going to take a while. listening to General Intellect Unit. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps. If you'd like to support the show, get access to our community Discord and help keep the lights on, then go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month. Every contribution is greatly appreciated. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're excellent shows and excellent folks. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.